This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Andrew Parsons from uh, Resolution Capital, thanks very much for coming on Talk Your Book. There's um, a heap going on in the world broadly and in financial markets at the minute, so I really appreciate you giving us some of your time. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, uh, I thought the best place to start would just be a, an outline of Resolution Capital and, and what you guys do and, and perhaps what your investment philosophy is. Sure. So uh, Resolution Capital invests in uh, listed real estate. Uh, we like, as we try and describe it, we're, we're real estate investors that happens to be listed. Um, we've been doing so for uh, a long period of time in one guise or another. We started out as a team back in uh, the mid-90s at Lend-Lease. Uh, we created Resolution Capital, transitioned uh, into Resolution Capital in uh, 2004, and we uh, broke away from Lend-Lease, if you will. Uh, and all along the way, we've been invested in, as I say, uh, when I started out, they were called listed property trusts, Australian listed property trusts. And then in the mid-2000s, we started to really, uh, um, dare I say, aggressively uh, look internationally. Uh, and we um, started a global strategy in uh, 2006, late 2006, uh, uh, for a client, uh, for a long-standing client. Um, and, um, you know, so from, from those beginnings, we've developed uh, what we think to be a, a pretty strong long-term investment track record uh, in, in listed real estate, both domestically uh, and globally. Uh, we've now got uh, a number of funds um, servicing or serving our customers um, on those strategies. And we recently started a global listed infrastructure strategy uh, with a separate dedicated team. And it's a, a pretty broad sector. How would you frame the, the helicopter view, if you like, at the minute of the, the global listed real estate sector? Well, I mean, I don't know if I want to be in a helicopter at the moment, but uh, it's a pretty dangerous world out there, it seems. Um, look, uh, uh, it's a uh, fascinating dynamic. You know, we've obviously... I think um, come through uh, just an extraordinary period in terms of obviously the post-COVID environment and now into you know, geopolitical uh, events. I'd describe it as a very distorted market, um, distorted in terms of monetary policy, you know, QE, low interest rates, distorted in terms of consumer spending patterns and the economy, employment markets, um, after some pretty ex exceptional circumstances. So I'd say distorted, but you know what's really um, gives us uh, some degree of you know relative confidence. And I don't want to sound like uh, you know optimism, uh, unbridled optimism, um, is that uh, the, the real estate markets are actually pretty orderly. Funnily enough, um, we're not seeing you know the sorts of um, reckless behaviour that we've seen historically in terms of too much debt uh, or too much uh, construction development activity. And they're the, I use this word, you know, probably too much, but they're the idiosyncratic features of real estate that you've got to be most concerned about, too much construction and too much debt. They're the things that invariably catch the market out relative to other investment classes. And so, yes, whilst there's all this uh, backdrop of uh, huge change and huge uh, challenges and um, unfortunate, you know, um, as I say, geopolitical events, fortunately, from a real estate perspective, 
what we're seeing is a very, um, you know, dare I say, orderly market. Now, I want to reiterate, you know, uh, that's, uh, that, that doesn't mean that uh, everything's going fantastically well because, you know, the demand side is the area that we can't have the greatest level of comfort really understanding. And, and obviously, as I say, um, given a distorted economy and facing higher interest rates and the, the issues in Europe, um, that, that's where we can't be, uh, can't be unbridled confidence. And what's the, the US bond market telling us about interest rates and, and how many hikes they're potentially going to get in over there? Yeah, so look, basically, obviously, the, the talk is that it's going to be a, a more gradual um, increase in interest rates from obviously a, a month ago, people expected that first shock of a 50 basis point increase. And now that's been went back to a, a series of 25 basis point increases. Um, look, that's that's the broad terms for, for what the market is starting to factor in uh, and, you know, how that plays out. Obviously, uh, you know, ask us again tomorrow, and I'm sure that uh, uh, there'll be a different view. It looked like consensus was that the Fed would, would raise five to seven times. Yeah. I and mean, given how flat the, the curve is looking, that would appear unrealistic to me. Is that sort of, has consensus shifted post-Ukraine and, and have you got a view on it or are you really taking a wait-and-see approach? Oh, Chris, I've learned never to try and look too far ahead in terms of predicting interest rates. I mean, they, you know, uh, recall that uh, back, uh, you know, um, seven or eight years ago, um, interest rates were expected to go higher meaningfully. Um, yeah, everybody's been waiting for them to normalise. Uh, and so trying to predict what the, the Fed is going to do is pretty hard, but they've been pretty good at, at telegraphing generally, haven't they? So I think broadly speaking, you've got to listen to what they say and, and the old saying, don't fight the Fed. Well, um, when they were forcefully reducing interest rates, you wanted to be on the right side of that. And, uh, you know, they're, they're saying that they're going to increase interest rates. I think that, you know, that, that, that's enough to be just cautious about um, uh, the view. They've, they've telegraphed it well, but obviously, as you said, there's some pretty exceptional um, uh, events taking place that uh, might uh, mean that that's not going to occur. But, you know, the one thing that everybody's been worried about is if there is another shock to the system, where do we go to from here? So I don't think it was foolhardy for those that claim that interest rates should normalise sooner than they have. I mean, just look at asset prices in the last, you know, three, five years. Um, asset value appreciation or inflation was extraordinary. And so I think, and, and, and you know, employment markets were improving. I think there was reason for them to have moved earlier on interest rates, quite frankly. So, and hence, you know, we're obviously hearing the, the discussion, are they behind the curve? And I think that that is still the case. I mean, you know, what we're seeing, and I'm sort of cutting quickly to some of the issues, what we're seeing in real estate is, is it's huge evidence of inflation pressure. You know, US uh, residential um, rents, are growing at uh, over 10% uh, per annum at the moment. Uh, so, and that's a quite an in, important contributor to the inflation uh, CPI calculation. So anybody thinks that uh, the inflation figures in the next you know, three months are going to fall off a cliff, I think they're in for a, a bit of a surprise because as I say, key contributors, yes, used car sales were a big contributor last year, uh, used car prices, I should say. Um, but right now, what we're seeing is that's being replaced with uh, very, very strong uh, rental growth in, in residential market. And that's a very, very important, I think, you know, it depends on which component, but residential's 30 to 40% of the contribu contribution to CPI. And as I say, rents were growing at 
call it 4% this time last year, 3 to 4% towards the end of the year it picked up, uh, mid to mid late 2021. And we're seeing it carrying on to 22, 10% rent growth. So that's uh, that's gonna be a, something that the, the, the authorities have to, to, to factor into their thinking. You couple that with the fact that oil prices look more like a crypto stock at the minute. And yeah. for anyone who thinks inflation's going away is, is yeah. just not really thinking Look, about it properly. What, what, what is the definition of transitory, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Do you think, um, given particularly that oil price spike, and you mentioned about the inflationary pressures from rent and other inputs, do you think there's any way those inflationary pressures don't lead to a recession in the next 18 months, a global recession? Oh, look, uh, you know, again, what, what's the old saying? The, the, the IMF has predicted uh, yeah. 20 of the last, uh, you know, uh, three recessions. Um, uh, I, I'm not going to make bold predictions about recessions, et cetera. Again, uh, you know, because it does depend on um, uh, central planning responses. Um, it depends on the whole things beyond my pay grade. But all I'll say is we, we try to think through the possibilities of every scenario and, and work towards protecting our, our clients' capital. I don't mean that to sound um, uh, trite. Uh, we simply can't, you know, predict the, the, you know, that sort of event or that sort of circumstance. We just don't know how uh, other things are going to play out. And so uh, we don't spend too much time. Look, it's fascinating talking about it. And, of course, we've got to be conscious of it for all, all sorts of reasons. But it's not something that fixates us. And talk to me about RCAP uh, more narrowly, if you like. What, what areas are you guys finding most attractive to invest in at the minute around the globe regarding real estate? Well, as I said, residential is extraordinary at the moment. You know, we've got a fundamental undersupply of residential property. And is that around all around the world or specifically in certain geographies? It is extraordinary, this global shortage of residential property um, for a whole range of raft of different reasons. But yes, Australia is not alone, I can assure you. Um, we're seeing similar things in, in Germany, uh, in Canada, in, uh, in, in the US, in, in, in um, Tokyo. Look, there's obviously excess housing in the broader Japan uh, uh, um, uh, broader Japan as a country. Uh, you know, you've probably read some of the stories about the uh, houses just left unsaleable in some of the regional locations in Japan. But in Tokyo itself, there's a you know, shortage of people uh, have moved into the cities, etc. So, um, you know, evidence of this uh, you know, was about two years ago uh, in Germany, uh, just over two years ago, um, the local um, government imposed a five-year rent freeze on apartments in Berlin. Uh, so uh, this is not something that's just happened because of COVID. This has been something that's been building uh, and um, uh, it's a global, uh, global issue. Residential affordability is, is, a, is a massive issue for governments to tackle. And, and that's why, you know, frankly, we've, uh, we've been uh, having, uh, we've had a very substantial part of the portfolio, in fact, about 25% in residential property. And again, what's fascinating is that uh, residential property in the listed market is, is quite diverse. We can buy apartments uh, in uh, North America, Canada, US, in, in, in Japan, in Germany, UK. Uh, we can also buy single family home portfolios. Uh, we can buy student housing. Uh, we can buy senior housing. Uh, we can buy what's called manufactured home communities, which is trailer parks. Uh, and so it's a, a huge opportunity set of basic needs shelter uh, where there's a shortage uh, and rents are, are growing, cash flows are growing. 
and that's your, you know, I'm sure it's going to become a topic, but that's your inflation hedge. So residential has been fantastic. You know, logistics is uh, also performing very strongly. Now that's going to be an interesting area how it performs in light of uh, rising interest rates and uh, more particularly the, the fact that you've just raised uh, rising energy prices, oil prices. That's going to be interesting. Uh, but that's certainly been an area of, uh, of uh, uh, focus for us. Uh, Self-storage. Look, if we come back, it's uh, it's been summarised, cutting back to it, beds, meds and sheds. Uh, <laughs> residential, uh, healthcare uh, and uh, storage. Now, storage is logistic storage, but also self-storage. That also has been a very uh, profitable area. But, yeah, that's a key theme of what we're doing, beds, meds and sheds. And that represents about two-thirds uh, if not a little bit more of our overall portfolio. And so coming back to the, the residential housing shortage in Australia, mm. for, for that to happen at a time when the first time in years we've had virtually no uh, immigration happening mm. here, do you see that being exacerbated once once the, the gates open up again and we do get increased migration? Well, it's not going to get easier, is it? I mean, um, you know, uh, look, we're just talking to... A, you know, an old hand in, um, in, in, in property. We had a chat with uh, former CEO of uh, Stockman, Peter Daly, this morning, because he's a, a guy that was around in the 70s and 80s uh, and has been, uh, you know, so it was just a good opportunity to talk to somebody with a bit more, you know, grey hair or, or hair full stop than me. Grey hair is um, a first world problem around yeah, here. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and um, look, it was just fascinating to talk to him about, you know, again, the real estate market in the 70s. I mean, in the 1970s, you know, he was saying the, 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 the debt, the house price to, to income level was so much lower than it is yeah. today. And back then, um, you had a very regulated uh, um, lending market. You know, the government literally determined how much and, and the rate that it could be lent at. Uh, and then he said, ironically, at the same time, the zoning constraints were were so um, almost non-existent, right? You know, it was so easy to get zoning for, for land. Houses were very simple. You know, the, the all the uh, infrastructure was very basic. You know, they just literally sell off the land and, and there'd be a dirt road out the front sort of thing. So that's how easy it was. Now, you fast forward to 2022, and it's almost the reverse. Finance is unregulated. It's hugely available. Multiple sources of, 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 of debt. Uh, but at the other end, on the other side, the supply picture is so much tougher. The zoning issues of getting land zoned, of all the infrastructure, of all the constraints. And so this dynamic today uh, has led to affordability issues uh, that are, are really challenging. And I think it's you know one of the unfortunate things of COVID and the government response was it just made it harder for young people. Uh, that to me was uh, one of the really, uh, I think, poor thinking uh, by governments in terms of how it was going to play out. And unfortunately, it's just made life that much more stressful um, for, for young people in particular. You mentioned before the, the cap on yields in Berlin in terms of rental yields. On rents, rent growth. So rent freeze, yeah. And we've seen... Um... Oh, by the way, sorry, I should just say, the government, uh, that was then taken to the German High Court and it was overturned. But what it highlighted is local governments beholden to voters and 80 plus percent of Berlin residents are renters. So of mm. course they're going to try and do anything that's a, an easy quick fix. Uh, but the, 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 the it was taken to the High Court, it was deemed to be unconstitutional. And so that's been uh, uh, overturned. But again, 
highlighting the pressure on governments to find these quick fix solutions, which is just not practical. We, yeah, I mean, it's not the same as that, but we've seen other things happen in Australia during COVID where uh, landlords find it much harder to evict tenants, even if they're behind in their rent. Do you think, you know, there's some unintended consequences to some of those almost emergency policies which made sense at the time, the longer they hang around, will that make it harder for developers to create more product and fix some of the shortages you're talking about? Look, there's no doubt it's a politically sensitive area and let's face it, you know, it's a socially critical area. Uh, and again, I think we have to be conscious of, of greater good of society. Um, you know, I believe we haven't had enough diversity in cities. Right? We have forced out people, um, you know, uh, to, to, to move to uh, cheaper areas. But then we all expect these people to come into the city and the expensive suburbs to cook, clean uh, and service. So, look, I think that the balance is, is it's not an easy um, uh, situation to resolve. But, yeah, some of the policies, I think, have been counterproductive. And the big thing for me is supply, right? I mean, you know, this is, again, the, the, the funny thing. Oh, people say, oh, Sydney's too expensive. Well, it can't be because if it was uh, too expensive, people wouldn't, you know, live here. But everybody wants to live here. So it finds its natural balance, right? If Sydney was cheap, that tells you it wouldn't be actually a very nice place to live. People wouldn't want to live there. So <laughs> there is a, an odd dynamic that takes place of finding the right balance. What we need to do is have a more healthy um, diverse society in some of these areas so that we're not forcing people to live in far-flung locations and commute in. Um, and so, look, uh, I don't have a, a magic wand so a solution, but I do think, you know, to your point, we're going to be careful. You can't just beat up the landlords, right, because, as you said, you need investment. You need to encourage supply. Supply has to come through um, um, uh, developers, Developers need to have um, a, a set of circumstances where they can invest confidently, where there's a balance. But there does have to be a balance, and that does mean also looking after, um, you know, uh, people less well off. I mean, you know, nurses and uh, and 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 police and all these people. I think that there must be surely more room for for healthy cities to have a broader mix of residents uh, living in communities and not being forced to, as I say, live on the, on the fringes uh, and, and enjoy a good lifestyle. So, you know, governments have got to take a 20, 30-year view and, and really develop for the future and create the right um, uh, uh, urban communities, which has got the infrastructure, uh, which has got the services, uh, and which has affordability options. Now, that will come through supply. Now, it, it, it's a supply, supply and demand dynamic. We need more supply which probably means we need more densification. And NIMBYism means people don't want more high-rise. Well, it's just a fact. If, if, if cities are going to continue to prosper and you don't want urban sprawl because the time travel uh, to travel, the, the impact on the environment, right, that also should be a huge consideration. Uh, we should really, I think, and it, it's probably not popular, we just need more densification. Uh, and that that will bring about supply and more solutions. But it's got to be it's got to be thoughtful supply. Uh, as I say, it's got to come hand in hand with the necessary infrastructure and and, and uh, services. And going back to your beds, meds, and sheds uh, comment, in terms of industrial property and, and the fact that a high portion of the value of the property is in land 
and less in the actual building construction. Do you see those types of property assets handling the coming inflation better than perhaps assets where a higher amount of the value is, is in the build costs and, and less in the actual land? Well, if you're facing a higher interest rate environment and depending on growth, and that's the critical issue, and depending on economic growth and tenant demand, in fact, um, uh, you actually want less land value and you want more build costs. And what I mean by that is um, uh, the area that's going to be most vulnerable in the next three, five years is actually land. But so what about, what about those office investors that just value a, an asset on a, a, a cash flow valuation and they're essentially buying the, the cash flow? Do you see if you're buying a 15-year whale and that's being juicy in a low interest rate environment, all of a sudden in 15 years, a dollar is not quite worth as much as what it is now. Does that become less attractive or not so much? Well, uh, yeah. So at the end of the day, for it to be a hedge against inflation, um, you, you need a couple of factors. First of all, you need construction costs to rise. Right? And that's what we're seeing. So that means that, to your point, uh, high construction costs means you need a higher development rent. In other words, for a developer to go out and build something new, um, if it can, it's going to cost them more to build it, then they need a higher rent. If I'm an existing building owner, that means that I've got um, the, uh, a bit of a buffer against new competition, and that's how uh, property can be a hedge against inflation. Now, there's a couple of things. First of all, to your point, you've got to look at real estate is not just about building, it's the land component. So land is the residual value, uh, if you will. You work backwards. You know how much it costs to, to build something. Uh, you know roughly what the market rent is. So the residual remainder value is the land. And that's the swing factor. And in a falling interest rate environment that we've had with moderate economic growth, land becomes so beautiful because it doesn't cost you to hold. Uh, it doesn't cost you much to hold it because mm. you leave your money in the bank. What are you going to get? One or two percent. You buy land. It doesn't give you an automatic yield but it's not costing you a lot to own it when you're only getting the alternative of one or 2% in the bank. So land has been the big beneficiary of this low interest rate, uh, uh, moderate economic growth environment. As we now head into a, a different environment where inflation starts to pick up, where construction costs start to pick up, uh, land is going to be very interesting to see what happens. And that, that's the thing that I think, uh, you know, it's going to be very careful to watch for. People have overpaid for land. And so it sounds, I don't know, put words in your mouth, but I'm interested to, from my own perspective, it sounds like you almost view land as the uh, monetary inflation you get from rising asset prices, from monetary stimulation, and you view the, the buildings benefiting from the, a broader inflation. Is that fair? Because we've had a low inflation yeah. in terms of CPI environment, but we've had high inflation in assets and land's played yeah. part of that, but you're maybe not as confident land will play in the, the CPI inflation that's coming? Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, Chris, why, why do you think, you know, um, uh, classic cars and stamps and um, uh, wine and, and bitcoins, the reason they've done so well in the last five, 10 years is because they've been a massive beneficiary of the low interest rates because it doesn't cost you to finance it when you're getting, as I say, nothing in the bank. Hey, I might as well go and buy a classic car um, and provided, obviously, you've got this interest rate environment. Now, imagine if, if uh, interest rates start moving to 10% and then I've got to finance buying that classic car. Hang on a minute. Uh, how do I finance it? Well, it'll cost me quite a bit of opportunity cost holding that classic car. 
uh, I've got to think a little more carefully about allocating capital. But in a low interest rate uh, QE, QE environment uh, where money's plentiful, people are just less discerning and it doesn't cost them as much to hold these non-income producing assets. So yeah, absolutely, these, these uh, land and, and these other assets have been clear beneficiaries of, of the environment that we've experienced in the last 10 uh, plus years. Because I'd have the view that a high inflation environment where there's strong growth um, is going to be a world where that fixed asset investment looks good as to you know, a lot of the older school type businesses, but mm. a stagflationary environment with mm. low growth and increasing prices mm. just brings a much bigger risk to the, the cash flows you have built in from the tenant or yeah. the banking system more broadly. And then you do go back to, you know, you've still got high inflation, but the things you want to own are perhaps, um, you know, back to land, perhaps Bitcoin, gold, these sorts of, mm. these sorts of things. But mm. do you have a view on uh, that? The difference uh, between inflation and stagflation? Absolutely. I mean, you know, again, for it to be hedged against inflation, again, think back, you know, low interest, everybody is, isn't it bizarre? When I started out, I came, my career sort of came into being when um, uh, real estate was a hedge against inflation. Then as we moved into the 90s and, and noughties, it became real estate's a yield play. Mm. So, and guess what? We've now moved back to its uh, hedge against inflation. And then you've just mentioned the word that we don't want to talk about, stagflation. Let's, let's leave that off to the side for a second. Um, my point is that, look, you know, real estate is a supply and demand game. It's as simple as that. If you, you don't have the right fundamentals, it doesn't matter what the inflation environment is. It doesn't matter what the interest rate environment is. Imagine if in a yield environment, oh, real estate's a yield play. If I've got um, a building, that I've been getting $10 million of, uh, of cash for, from, but there's 20% vacancy rate in the office market. And I know my tenant's going to leave and I know I'm going to um, uh, struggle to find a new a tenant and get a much lower rent. It doesn't matter what interest rates are. That's not going to be a good investment. So, it's, so you've got to have the right uh, supply demand dynamics. And that's the critical thing to protect yourself against uncertainty, pricing power. Mm. I can't tell you what, the stagflation environment could be. I can't tell you the, I can't tell you, I can't tell, all I can tell you is I, we look, the best form of defence is to look for pricing power. And that's hard in itself. Let's not suggest otherwise. But what that means is you want to look for the areas where there's supply constraints. And you want to look for the areas that are most relevant to the economy and a growing economy. And if you can find those factors, well, leak supply and the most amount of tenant demand, you're probably going to have the best relative, at least, pricing power. And that should uh, be the most competitive way you can invest your money in whatever the circumstances are. Because again, again I look back, you know, my career, uh, you know, I didn't expect the probably crash in the early 1990s was going to be as bad as it was. Didn't see the, I remember there was a Russian crisis in the, in the, in the 90s, there was the Asian financial crisis. Well, the 98, the Russian one led to the Asian financial crisis, didn't it? That's right, exactly. So then you had the dot-com bubble burst, you had uh, September 2001 terrorism, you had the GFC, you had Brexit. Trying to predict all these events and how they played out, honestly, you know, COVID, et cetera, et cetera. I've learned, don't try and predict, just try and sensibly invest 
don't pretend that you know like we can't pontificate on 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 how this economy is going to play out all we can do is try to invest sensibly and the best way as i say supply and demand and the other thing i didn't mention is um uh, capitalization so if you ask us what's the the key it's location location capitalization right you want best real estate and strong balance sheets and that'll get you through uh hopefully this whatever the economy in the world throws at you very uh, very sound advice in uh, in some trying times. So thanks very much, Andrew. Really appreciate it. And that's a, a good way to finish. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thanks very much. All the best. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.